pornos, pooters and sexual backflips. Bedtime stories for grown-ups. Welcome to the Son of Zorro podcast. Looks like Daly's been uh, let off his leash. Oh, speaking of uh, let off, uh, I'm looking forward to finding out if uh, Zorro's been let off by uh, Mr. Big. Uh, a fantastic way to continue our streak of embarrassing and awkward introductions. Well, I didn't want to let you down, boy. Hopefully not, mate. So, in the last episode, the lightning storm of Crazy Joe and the Scatman. We left our protagonist, Zorro, high up in the hills of Morocco, with the unsuspecting Mr. T in the company of Crazy Joe and Mr. Big, who had perhaps found a journalist that he may be considering to dispose of. So grab open a cold one, sit back and enjoy part two of A Visit with Mr. Big and Crazy Joe, a soap bar story. As dusk was falling, another car arrived. It was this car that was to drive me out to see a large quantity that was presently being worked on. Or not. I must admit that I was rather pleased that I had a new driver, as Ali was absolutely slaughtered. I had already seen him drink about 12 to 14 bottles of beer, in addition to having smoked about the same number of joints, and he was now starting to eye up the bottle of whiskey that was on the table in front of Mr Big. I pointed out how battered Ali's eyes looked to Mr T, just in case he was starting to get too comfortable. The drive back to civilization was looking like it was bound to be an adventure in itself. Into the back and beyond. I was to go alone with Crazy Joe, whom I had not so much as talked to yet. I didn't even know that he could speak any English. The others, including Mr T, were to stay behind with Mr Big. Suddenly the scene from the movie Scarface, where Tony Montana stays behind in South America while his sidekick was taken for a helicopter ride and hung, sprung to mind. The round trip would take about four or five hours. I was to wear a woolen hat in order to semi-disguise myself, at a glance, as a Moroccan. As I got into the back of the car, two Moroccans who had been hanging around outside the house got in on either side of me and Crazy Joe jumped into the front passenger's seat with a large bag of beer. Our driver was a real smiley guy, who grinned each time our eyes met. But why was he grinning? Did he know something that I didn't know? Was I being taken for one of those rides that you see only in movies like The Godfather? Never to be seen again? It was anyone's guess. We travelled some distance in the darkness, 
In what direction, I wouldn't know. The radio was blaring with Arabic music and every time my bottle of beer was empty, I would throw it out of the window, at their insistence, and a fresh one would be passed to me along with the odd spliff. Crazy Joe didn't say much to me for the first leg of our journey other than, you want one more beer? He was heavily involved in conversation with the driver, in Arabic of course, probably trying to figure out where to dispose of my body, I thought to myself, as I pretended to be interested in what they were saying. The Arabic conversation suddenly sounded a bit on the fed up and angry side, as the car pulled to a stop. We had hit one of the many police roadblocks that spring up in random places, throughout the mountains after dark. A uniformed policeman approached the car as the driver rolled down the window. I immediately dipped my head, putting my woolen hat between me and the cop, while keeping one eye on him at all times. The cop took one look at Crazy Joe, went completely blank and a little pale, then walked away without saying a word. He looked like he'd just seen a ghost. Why you put your head down? Crazy Joe demanded. I didn't want to make trouble for you, I answered. When you with me, you keep your head up. No put head down, he said loudly, almost shouting, while pushing his chin up with two fingers. Why this man eats good food? Why his wife have nice clothes? Because I pay to him money, he said, banging his chest whilst answering his own questions. He explained to me that it was he that led the convoys that took the hash to the beach to be loaded on the boats. He would drive on ahead, telling the police to look the other way whilst his trucks went through unhindered with however many tons on board. He would pay them a few thousand extra dirhams each as a form of a bonus in addition to what they were already getting. No wonder this guy struck me as being half-crazed, and I thought I lived on the edge. A little while later, we pulled off the road and into the outskirts of a village. We changed carts, said Crazy Joe. Sure enough, there was a four-wheel drive waiting for us with the motor running. The whole thing couldn't have been better orchestrated by the SAS. As I jumped from one car to the other, the two silent Moroccans sitting on either side of me changed to two equally silent ones. Once all was sorted and the other car was put safely out of sight, we were on our way again. This time, though, on dirt tracks. Up the sides of mountains and down across valleys. The path, or piece as they call it, seemed an endless network of mud and pothole-infested dirt track, which caused us to bounce all over the inside of our four-wheel drive for almost a couple of hours, like the bulls in a bingo machine. We were out in the middle of absolutely nowhere now. If they were going to kill me, this is where it would happen. I thought to myself, almost expecting the cold, burning sensation of a knife cutting my throat, and the last words, journalist hijo de puta, journalist son of a whore, at any second. If they dumped me out here, I'd never be seen again. The wild dogs would eat your remains in no time flat. Besides, who would ever look for you here? Crazy Joe tried to make light conversation with me in his extremely limited, broken English, whilst we swallowed beer after beer, throwing the bottles out of the window as we went. The conversation went something like this. If I give you two tons, you can sell in England? You like a sniff? As in do you do cocaine? You like pussy? 
and then variations of the same general themes. There's a time for work, making and selling hash, and there's a time for sniffing, drinking and making jiggy-jiggy with putters, otherwise known as hookers. It turned out that Crazy Joe preferred his putters at age 10 and 6, which shocked me a bit until I realised that he meant 16. Smoking hash for him was just the same as smoking cigarettes, so it didn't really enter into the conversation. Arriving at the stash. After almost two hours of talking about sniffing, drinking, pooters and jiggy-jiggy, we arrived at some sort of shed-like building in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and stopped. Well, if I was going to be assassinated, this was definitely the place. As we entered, Crazy Joe explained that this was where they packaged the hash, ready to be taken to the boats. One of the guys started a generator and the lights came on. Standing there in the middle of the room in front of me were two tons of soap bar, a scourge of Europe. The bars were flat packed on their sides in cellophane packets, 20 bars, which is 5 kilos, to the package. On one side of the room was a total of 1,400 kilos. 1.4 1.4 tons, stacked about 5 foot 6 inches high, gauging by my own height in comparison with the size of the stack. The two back rows were 20 flat packs tall, so 100 kilos each, and 5 stacks long. In other words, 500 kilos per row times 2 makes 1 ton in just the two back rows. In the front were 5 stacks, 16 flat packs high, making another 400 kilos. I couldn't help myself. I asked Crazy Joe to take my picture next to the stack and handed him my point-and-shoot camera. This, in Joe's eyes, made me just as crazy as he was, and from that moment onward, he adopted me as his brother. Unfortunately, Joe makes a better smuggler than he does a photographer. When my film was finally developed, Joe had somehow taken a picture of the ceiling, by accident. On the other side of the room were a further seven stacks piled 13 and 14 flat packs high making a further 450 kilos. If you counted the extra few flat packs and the 30 kilo bag ready for shipping that was sitting on the floor next to it all, the whole lot worked out to be 1,900 odd kilos, or in other words, 1.9 tonnes. The contents of this room alone, on the bulk wholesale market in the UK, would fetch little over £1,700,000. A little over two and a quarter million when sold off as individual kilos at, say, 1,200 a kilo. This shed was the last and final stage of preparation before shipment to Europe. It was here that the flat packs were being taped together in stacks of three, 15 kilos. Then two stacks would be placed side by side and sewn into a suitcase-shaped burlap potato sack. Package complete with handle, making it easy to load and unload in a hurry. Once the burlap suitcases were made, they were moved to another part of the shed, where they were stacked waiting for Joe and his buddies to take to the coast, where they would be loaded, probably under armed guard, onto a boat bound for Europe. This would be a two-ton shipment when complete. With the pictures having been taken, it was time to return to Mr Biggs. Returning to Mr Biggs. Crazy Joe was getting wrecked now. He had decided that I was his brother and he wanted to party with me. According to him, we were going to Tangier together in a couple of days, after he had finished his delivery, where we would be entertained by the best ten and six-year-old putters in the city, and all at his expense. Wow. 
We climbed back into the four-wheel drive and started on our two-and-a-half-hour journey or so, bumpy ride back to semi-civilization. Joe told the driver to take a small detour, saying that he had to pick something up. Before I knew it, we had pulled into the back of a tiny village. A boy, not much older than 14, walked up to the car and entered into some form of negotiation with Joe. He disappeared off for a minute and came back with a bag of beers and something else which he gave to Joe. 700 dirhams, so just under 50 pounds, changed hands, and we were gone. About half a kilometre later, the car stopped and Joe asked me to hold on to his beer for a second. He pulled a small lump out of his pocket. It was a tiny knotted corner of some form of carrier bag. He ripped the knot open with his teeth. he just bought a gram of coke. He asked me for something flat and I passed him a credit card, thinking he wanted to chop it up. You don't have passport? Joe asked, throwing me a confused glance. I handed him my passport. He immediately set about chopping up lines of cocaine on the back of my passport. Now, I would normally have made some form of anti-class A statement at this point, but sitting in the back of a four-wheel drive full of heavy-duty smugglers, somewhere in the middle of bandit country, late at night is not the best place to suddenly start getting moralistic. I said nothing and let them get on with it. Within minutes we were on our way again, this time with my passport, laden with little white lines, sitting on the dashboard. Joe was on a roll now. Business had been concluded, and he was now partying with his newfound brother. A couple more beers and a spliff later, Joe had the driver pull up for yet another round of lines. He switched the light on, and there was a great deal of confusion whilst he searched through his address book for phone numbers. For some reason, he was having difficulty reading a number that he was trying to dial on his mobile phone. Finally, he was through. After a couple of minutes, he passed the phone to me. Here, talk to this girl, he said. I suddenly found myself on the phone to a girl with one of the most seductive voices I have ever heard, although I never understood a word of what she was saying. This was the puta that Crazy Joe had picked for me. You like? he asked as I passed him his phone back. Uh, She sounds very beautiful. I answered in total honesty. We go see her now, said Joe, who was ready to party. I thought of Mr T being stuck in the mountains for another day with Mr Big and Ali, our drunken driver, all because Crazy Joe had decided to take me whoring in Tangier instead of returning to the house as planned. Somehow, it didn't seem fair. Ah, we must return for my Canadian friend. We go see the girls another day, I said, hoping that Joe would forget about it by the morning. Joe must have thought that I wasn't so keen on the first girl, so, after another round of lines, he dialed another girl and passed me the phone. She was equally as seductive, and although I've never got my head around the concept of sleeping with hookers before in my life, I really do believe that these girls would have tempted even my local vicar. If my mama could only see me now, I thought to myself, what would she think? Here I was, sitting in the back of a four-wheel drive with four Moroccan smugglers, in the middle of fuck-knows-where bandit country, Morocco, at 10.30 at night, listening to Arabic music, drinking beers one after another, throwing the empties out of the window as you reach for the next one, smoking extremely strong hash and talking to hookers in Tangier on a mobile phone, whilst my fellow travellers did lines of cocaine off the back of my passport. Fuck me. 
We finally pulled up outside Mr. Big's house. Mr. T was extremely relieved to see me. He was convinced that I had been killed in the mountains and that he too would never see his family again. He had thought about running, but hadn't a clue as to where to run to. His biggest fright was still to come, however. Heading for home. After hanging out with Mr. Big for another half hour, we decided to call it a night and head for home. Mr. Big had decided that he liked me and would come to see me the following day. Not really a good idea from my point of view, as a small number of people knew me as a journalist in town. All it would have taken was a whisper in his ear by one of those people whilst I was in the toilet and I could well have ended up dead. There was only about a 2% chance that this might happen, but it wasn't worth the risk. I would have to think this one out carefully in the morning. Ali, our driver, was absolutely wrecked. His eyes were really red, but he would later prove himself to be a godsend. As we made our way back to town, things were looking a little dodgy. It was after midnight and the controls, or checkpoints along the mountain roads, were extremely heavy at this time of day, especially if they find a Westerner in the car. There is only one reason for a foreigner to be in the mountains late at night. Hashish. We hit our first checkpoint within 20 minutes of leaving. There were four Moroccans in the car with us, including Ali, and the guards were in an aggressive mood. Within seconds, they had dragged the Moroccans out of the car, demanding their identity papers. They were given them a right grilling, whilst they emptied their pockets and patted them down. Not good news considering that at least one of them was carrying hash. At the same time, one of the guards was giving Mr. T and myself a thorough inspection with a flashlight through the back window of the car. We sat silent. The Moroccans were talking loud and fast outside. Suddenly the car door opened again and one of the guards was shouting, Camera! Camera! Pointing to my lenses and tripod on the floor. Oh shit. This really was Midnight Express type stuff. Ali, of all people, recognised one of the guards and managed to convince him that all was above board and not worth pursuing any further. Reluctantly, the guards allowed us to continue on our way although they were still shouting threats at us as we left. These weren't pleasant guys, and what made things worse was that the most notoriously dangerous checkpoint of all was still yet to come. Even the Moroccans started getting paranoid. There were two of them carrying hash, and there was no way that they wanted to be in the car with us when we hit the next control. They decided to walk it instead and started to devise an elaborate story as to how Mr T and I happened to be in the same car as them at this time. We were at the beach for the day. Why would we do that in the middle of winter is anyone's guess, but tourists are allowed to be stupid in Morocco. Anyway, we had taken a taxi back, but he had refused to take us all the way back to our hotel and had dumped us off in a village during the early evening. We had waited hours for a taxi, to no avail, and only had just managed to convince a passing taxi and its passenger to give us a ride into town. Not very believable, but it was the best shot that we had. Mr T's nerves were getting shot and he was starting to rattle big time. He looked like he didn't know whether to shit, run, wind his watch or play dead. Not good, because at the first sign of weakness, the guards would centre their attention on him. I told him to just play stupid and I would draw their attention to myself. I was working on the presumption that he who speaks first is in charge. Besides, 
I'd already made an enemy here earlier today with my bottle of beer. I spent the next couple of minutes psyching myself up for arsehole mode as we dropped off the two Moroccans just around the last bend in the road, about 300 yards from the final checkpoint. You could see the lights of the control as we neared it. There was no traffic going through whatsoever, leaving all six guards with nothing better to do but give us a right good going over. This was going to be a nightmare. As we neared, one of the guards stepped forward, signalling to us to pull over. He hadn't even looked at who was in the back yet. When he saw Ali, he just waved us through. Wow, another one of Ali's mates. Thank God he was such a popular pisshead. Without ever meaning to, Ali had saved the day. We waited round the next bend for our two Moroccan friends. Mr T looked like he had aged about 20 years in less than 20 hours, but he was certainly relieved to be back on the other side of any danger. On returning to our hotel, I smoked my last and final joint for the day, wishing that I had just one last beer to wash it down with, then went to bed, ready to do my 4.30am battle with the rooster. Red Eye Reporter Rule Number 2 The following morning, at breakfast, it seemed that Mr T was still in shock from the previous day's adventure. There was no time for rooster talk today. I had to be thinking about Mr Big's imminent arrival this afternoon and just which of Red Eye's rules I should be applying to this situation. I opted for rule number two. When in serious doubt, just get the fuck out. The double zero would have to wait. Besides, I was convinced that I could get in another way. Later. That morning I made arrangements for a ride to Quater, a Spanish tax-free enclave on the north coast of Africa, and another exit point from Morocco. I was determined to give my newly found police friends in the Tangier ferry terminal a wide berth on the way out. Not that I hadn't enjoyed the intimacy of our relationship or anything like that, but I just didn't fancy giving it another go. Twelve more beers and I was already in Quater. No hassle whatsoever with customs. The only problem was, I didn't have a smoke to take me through the two days that I would have to spend with all of the British pensioners on the Costa del Sol before returning home. My prayers were answered as I crossed the car park outside of the ferry terminal equator. Psst! Hashish? I heard someone calling. I wandered over to a guy who was lurking in the shadows. He was holding out a couple of grams of hash. I recognised it as being first quality right away. How much? I asked. 3,000 pesetas, which is £12, was the answer. Amsterdam prices. Everyone tries to rip you off. Look into my eyes, my friend, I said, pointing into them, while at the same time looking into his. I'm an old man, and I've spent much time in the mountains of Morocco. Now, how much do you want for this hashish? I asked. Mm, you give me maybe... 1,000 pesetas, was the answer, and the deal was struck. So, armed to the teeth with a bottle of bourbon and a couple of grams of good quality hash, I made my way to Tormelinos, where I hung out amongst the fish and chip shops and karaoke bars that make up the decrepit ambience that my fellow tasteless Brits have imported and then dumped upon this once beautiful coastline. And so ends my story about meeting Mr. Big and Crazy Joe. I will remember my evening in the mountains with Joe forever. A special thanks goes out to Mr. T and to the very lovely Putas 
from Tangier. With love, Zora. Mr. T left behind, Scarface sprung to mind. Paranoid, journalist, hijo de puta. There's a time to work, there's time to jiggy jiggy. Mountain of soap bar, a smuggler, not a photographer. Burlap sack bound for the coast. Cocaine passport, hookers on the line. Mr. T's relief, thousand pesetas in tacky tarmelinas. When in doubt, get the fuck out. saying is that I want to look back and say that I did the best I could while I was stuck in this place. Had as much fun as I could while I was stuck in this place. Played as hard as I could while I was stuck in this place. Dogged as many girls as I could while I was stuck in this place. Okay, Max, got a legendary uh, tale for you this week. From the uh, the music legend that is Willie Nelson. Ah, the red-headed stranger. Yeah, that's him exactly, Shotgun Willie. So yeah, he's a billboard-topping legend that's done just about everything in his 87 years on Earth, and he's lived through everything to tell the tale. So in the spirit of sharing a few uh, crazy tales of the legend himself, um, here is uh, just a collection, a short collection, of the adventures of Mr. Nelson. Willie and the T-shirt. So, although Willie is legendary for producing country music hits, and it turns out he's not legendary at paying his taxes. In fact, (laughs) he actually landed himself a $32 million bill to the taxman for delinquent taxes. Um, But, um, ever the wheeler dealer was Willie. He, uh, He struck up a bit of a deal with the taxman, um, that he would release a collection of demos and stripped-down tunes um, into an album appropriately um, named The IRS Tapes. Um, however, it turns out that Willie, uh, he can strike up a good deal, can our Willie, but he can't strike up record sales. And in a promotional stunt on uh, on Primetime Live, uh, Willie entered the stage wearing a T-shirt and... Um, that had printed on it, 1-800-IRS-TAPE. Thousands saw it, and the fans started to call. Those calls came flooding in. (laughs) I can see where this is going already. (laughs) (laughs) However, Willie's phone lay dormant. Not a call, not a ring, nothing was going there. However, if we uh, hop over to uh, Salt Lake City, a small technology company had their phone ringing off the hook. It actually turned out that the, um, obviously the Americans love that whole 1-800 then some shitty word at the end, which I absolutely hate because phones these days don't even have the the fucking letters on so you can't even call them. But yeah, this, uh, this number rang through to this Salt Lake City technology company and uh, they were absolutely swamped. Uh, in the end, they uh, they kindly let Willie uh, rent the phone line so he could sp- get his orders through to his fans. 
And yeah, it uh, it helped him on the road to getting uh, almost square with the tax man, shall we say? But uh, yeah, a bit of a mishap there with with his uh, with his t-shirt. <laughs> Willie and the plane crash. Plane crashes, um, which are synonymous with rock and roll, um, and also taking the lives of rock stars too. I uh, think of the the day that music died with. Uh, Buddy Holly, J.P. Richardson, the Big Bopper, uh, and they call me the Big Bopper. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> in, that's notorious B.I.G. Yeah, isn't that's it? <laughs> that's the wrong that's the wrong Big Bopper there. Um, and Richie Valens, uh, obviously among among others in the crash as well. But obviously, plane crashes are are go hand in hand with rock and roll often. Um, well, our Willie, he he loved flying, and uh, he was flying in to see uh, one of his one of his good friends. Uh, Happy Shahan, who was a Western actor who owned a an area of land that he'd built up into a small village that was used in a lot of Western movies. And uh, yeah, Happy used to sit out there on the, on the lawn watching the planes come in and he was w- watching one such plane that had Willie Nelson in and he was watching it drift down and he saw as soon as the wheels touched the tarmac the plane hit a pothole. It then proceeded to flip and slide across the runway with Willie inside. And as any good friend would do, he grabbed the nearest phone and he rang... Dialed 0800. <laughs> spoke to the tech company. He didn't speak to the Salt Lake City tech company, no. Instead, as every good friend would do, um, happy, obviously, loving... Uh, loving the the news and publicity for his small western town, actually rang the radio station, the TV station, and the newspapers. Um, oh, yeah, and then he decided to hop in his Jeep and uh, go and help out Willie. It, so reminds, it reminds me of the time I can remember we used to have a, a cleaner uh, at my dad's house, and uh, we, we used to have a big dog uh, called Jack, who was yeah. a bull mastiff, and... Uh, he was way over 10 stone and sometimes he'd get a little bit horny. So um, if he decided that uh, he wanted to have sex with you, he was going to. Uh, and this cleaner turned up at the house and uh, suddenly Jack got a bit amorous and uh, started humping her leg. Uh, so the, uh, the cleaner sort of cried out uh, screams of, uh, you know, help, do something, do something. Uh, so my dad did do something. He got the camera out and took a few photos and then, then went to help. <laughs> Sounds like a modern day happy. But, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Happy eventually, um, jumps into the Jeep and, uh, drives over to the crash site where, uh, Willie and his pilot are limping down the track. Um, and, uh, as, as he returns Willie back to the hangar, um, there's a media storm waiting with questions like, uh, is he alive? Was he hurt? Um, has he died? And, uh, yeah, Willie just smiled to the crowds and said, uh, why? It was a perfect landing. I walked away from it, of course. Well, that's all you want. It is. It is. There's nothing more infuriating, I don't think, than when people clap when you land. Willie and the sex marathon. <laughs> <laughs> This is uh, what I like to call a Ron Seal tale, as it does exactly what it says in the title. 
during the depth of his uh, tax problems, it wasn't the only issue that Willie had. He actually had another major problem in the form of a $50 million um, sized suit that was being put upon him by a woman that was filing against him as Willie had promised to marry her. Now, he'd promised to marry her after they'd after the two of them had completed a nine consecutive hour sex marathon. Wait for it, it gets better. That was consummated with a backflip while they were both attached. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. <laughs> Naturally, this tale became the stuff of tabloid legend, but in 1991, Rolling Stones interviewed, and he uh, he told his aptly named friend, um, <laughs> Kinky Friedman, um, that it was the only true story about him. So there you go. So the rest of what you got to say is absolutely. So the rest bollocks. of the rest of what's said, or and and will ever say about Willie, is absolute shit. But that one's true. So that was Willie in the sex. To marathon. be honest, if you're going to have one true thing written about you, it yeah, might be that it yeah. should be that you've considered uh, completed a nine-hour sex marathon, finished with a a, a backflip while both still attached. Yeah, I think that's the finest detail that you could ever add into that story. Yeah, while still attached. <laughs> yeah. Willie and the White House. Um, in 1980, he was invited to perform for then-President Jimmy Carter. Uh, the gig went well at, uh, in, in the White House. It was filled with the, the usual uh, famous faces and dignitary who uh, sat there on their soft cushion seats and applauded politely. Um, but it was after the gig that we're more interested on what happened with Willie. Um, Willie disappeared off to a side room, um, and what uh, what happened after that is the stuff of legend. While in the side room, Willie rolled a fat spliff for himself, and uh, this caught the eye of President Jimmy. Um, on seeing this, gave the nod to his security staff, and Willie and the President retired to the roof where they sat on lawn chairs and smoked under the stars. Nelson's been asked about this many times, and yeah, he always plays it cool. He's never, ever really given any details on it. Um, And when asked in interview, um, has been quoted, oh, yeah, that might have happened. I forgot, is what he said. Yeah. (laughs) As as you would. Yeah, I always forget when I'm smoking with the president in the White House. He's a fucking dude, isn't he? Oh, the best. The best. Fireman Willie. So, I thought I'd end this small collection of tales with a Christmassy tale, all warm and snuggly to end on. Willie was at a Christmas party in Nashville in 1969, and after many of a favourite drink, whiskey and beer, of course, his preferred combo, he returned home to uh, Ridgetop, Tennessee, um, whereupon he found his house ablaze. Uh, his actual words were, by the time I got there, it was burning real good. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
which is only how I could imagine you desc- describe like a bonfire or, um, or a, a barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> or, or a joint. Maybe that was his uh, preferred vocabulary there, yeah. So, yeah, on seeing the smoke billowing from his property, um, Willie's heart sank as he knew his true love would be trapped inside. Being the action hero that we know him to be, um, he just ran inside. He ditched everything. Um, maybe it was the Dutch courage from the many whiskies he's had at the Christmas do, um, but I'd like to think it was because he's the action hero we all deserve. So, yeah, he broke into the uh, to the to the burning property, broke through the flames and rescued his true love. Kinky Friedman. (laughs) Not with Kinky Friedman, but he emerged from the flames and the smoke with a pound of Colombian grass. (laughs) Oh, and and yet, he also dipped in to um, get his favourite guitar, Trigger, the very famous Trigger. Um, Yeah, he's had that for... Fucking 50 years yeah. or something like that, hasn't it? It's famous, yeah. But it was the pound of Colombian grass that he was more bothered about. Um, I mean, it's. I guess it was good that he um, he saved Trigger as it was only a year later that his uh, career skyrocketed and it was later on um, that he then started working on his first al- album and his career sort of skyrocketed. But um, <laughs> in an interview, Nelson said... Uh, I wasn't being brave by uh, running into the burn- burning building um, to get my dope. I was trying to keep it away from the firemen so they didn't turn me into the police. <laughs> and uh, I think we'll end on uh, my my favourite quote from Willie Nelson. Pots like sex. It's all good. Some's great. Shotgun Willie, the red-headed stranger. The Adventures of Mr. Wilson 1-800-IRS-TAPE Flying Flipping Pothole Willie A Famous Sexy Somersault Presidential Blaze Up Willie Saves His Grass And The Little Known Trigger Pots Like Sex It's All Good Sounds Great case. A very special case. So, who is it? You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, it's some other choice they're going to try to make for you. You got to do what Randall Pink Floyd wants to do, man. Let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules they're going to try to get you to follow. You just got to keep living, man. Well, carrying on the the theme of of legends and unwelcome visitors, I thought I would share a story about a man who was famously outlawed from many a place, and that's Mr. Sean Ryder, junkie, thief, icon, and lead singer of the Happy Mondays, of course. So Sean was a man whose main aspiration in life was to make it onto Top of the Pops. Only once he got there, not liking being told what to do, he instructed the head honcho of the show to fuck off knobhead, do one, after the performance, and was consequently banned for life, 
but he made it anyway. He even got kicked out of Glastonbury the year that they were headlining. And then obviously there was his appearance on TFI Friday, whereby the host Chris Evans even offered Ryder his shoes as long as he didn't swear as the show was being broadcasted live. He swore and was banned from doing any interviews that weren't pre-recorded. However, spotting a loophole in the agreement, Sean was actually invited back onto the show for a live rendition of the Sex Pistols song Pretty Vacant. But because it wasn't an interview, he got the green light. What could go wrong, hey? Sean decided to say fuck as many times as he possibly could (laughs) during the three-minute set. The result? He is the only person listed specifically, by name, on the Channel 4 transmission guidebook of things that are forbidden from the station. But the story that I wish to impart with you today is about when Sean and the Mondays went to work on their fourth studio album, Yes Please, in Barbados, and the huge repercussions that this disastrous, yet very highly amusing, trip caused. So the story starts with Factory Records, uh, which, uh, as many of you know, uh, were a Manchester-based record label that discovered and featured, amongst others, uh, bands such as Joy Division, New Order and Latterly, saved by, and then consequently broken by, the Happy Mondays. Yep. The label uh, was started by an out-of-work actor, Alan Erasmus, and local Granada TV presenter, Tony Wilson, both music aficionados who, like many, were disillusioned with the 1970s scene of prog and stadium rock. But having witnessed the Sex Pistols come and play a gig in a local hall in Bromley, a band that obviously was made up of uh, people that couldn't play their instruments and a singer who who couldn't sing, Uh, Manchester, through caution to the wind, uh, went out and bought a couple of guitars. And from the 40-odd people uh, that were in attendance, the Manchester music scene was born. Um, So Wilson, Erasmus and a designer uh, named Peter Saville, realising this sort of cultural explosion, started a club night at a venue they named The Factory and would soon later go on to found a record label by the same name signing one of the house bands from the club, Joy Division, as their seminal act. The contract was written on on a napkin and signed by Wilson using his own blood. The label would own nothing of the band's work, give them a 50-50 profit split, complete creative freedom musically, and the freedom to fuck off at any point, a contract that was economically dysfunctional, to say the least, yet would become the key business model behind the new factory records. So Wilson, who was, uh, he was, I mean, he was a Cambridge-educated, uh, pompous intellectual, and, uh, and the rest of the gang, they wanted to, to merge conceptual art with, with, with street music, and, and each artist that recorded for them had to have a particular sound and, and image. Uh, curated in part uh, by by uh, Factory Records' in-house design team, and despite so, despite relatively successful record sales, ultimately they they were pissing money up the wall monumentally. Um, for example, the label's biggest commercial success came in the form of New Order's Blue Monday, and although it was a huge hit, uh, the high cost of the beautiful record sleeve itself, uh, designed by by Savile not Jimmy, 
uh, meant that <laughs> luckily <laughs> meant that they actually lost money with every single unit sold. God. So top notch business acumen there. They also uh, bought a vast warehouse that used to sell yachts in in the city centre. And they turned it into this sort of ostentatious nightclub that hardly nobody ever went to. And it it ran at a loss of a mere £50,000 a month. Do you know the name of the nightclub? The Hacienda, of course. Yeah. And it was kept barely afloat only by the record sales of New Order. Only when the packaging wasn't more expensive than the cost of the record itself, obviously. Uh, they also passed on a little band called The Smiths saying, your demos are fucking shit. <laughs> this, this mank accent yeah. is growing on you. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> However, always uh, the blind optimists, uh, there was a sense that all was not lost for, for the bosses at Factory. And as the Acid House and, and Rave movement was emerging from, from over the horizon, casting a a strobe light through the industrial grey city and in hope uh, simultaneously through the label. And with all great movements, much like the the poop punk stage movement uh, and Gigi Allen from episode two, it needed a face. Of course. Q, Sean Ryder and the Happy Mondays. A lovely face to have. So the Happy Mondays, uh, for those of you who don't know, carved up their own sound that was a mashup of of funk, house and psychedelia and consisted of Sean on vocals, his brother Paul on bass, Mark Day on guitar, Gary Whelan on drums, Nobed on keyboard and Bez, who was on ecstasy. Um, The Mondays in general had a pretty relaxed attitude towards drugs. Uh, Ryder once advised... If it says take eight on the packet, it basically means you can take 28. So they were hedonistic lager louts, uh, heroin addicts out to have a good time, all of them petty thieves, and they'd even go on to steal their lyrics from porn magazines on a, on a regular basis. No fucks given. And actually, Sean left school at 13, not knowing his alphabet, but would go on to become the poet laureate of lad culture. Uh, he only got interested in educating himself after taking LSD when he was 18, uh, something of which he'd carry on when he was working as a postman uh, just to make the job more interesting. Um, he actually got sacked because he bit a dog whilst tripping doing one of his rounds. <laughs> so uh, I suppose all, I, well, I suppose the Mondays had all of the ingredients required to be a success and uh, save their financially failing label. Or, alternatively, all of the ingredients to royally fuck things up. Indeed. It started off well. Riding the crest of the ecstasy wave, uh, the Hacienda became the first ever super club, uh, like a mecca of the dance music scene. The Mondays were, were critically acclaimed, commercially successful, worldwide tours, the whole fucking shebang. Uh, and everything was just hunky-dory for a while. But you see... The problem with drugs is that they tend to be a bit on the on the Moorish side, uh, debilitating, uh, you know. And uh, for Sean and the Mondays, their overindulgences in said delicacies were rapidly taking their toll on the band, and they were in a pretty dark place. And I think nothing better illustrates uh, this than when attempting to write a follow-up uh, single to, to their song Step On in uh, late 1990, a dazed rider 
simply sat speechless in the studio for three days straight wearing a balaclava over his head. (laughs) And the music technicians on hand got a bit worried and had to ask Tony Wilson to tell Sean to take it off. (laughs) In fact, Sean Ryder, he once said, I can remember the 60s better than the 90s. He was born in 1962, by the way. Oh, right, okay. (laughs) So... You know, understandably concerned that their their most successful act was slipping away into a drug-induced abyss, Wilson and Factory Records decided to send them away to a place where heroin was unavailable to record their fourth album, Barbados, Eddie Grant's studio, nonetheless. And with smack off the menu, Wilson stocked Ryder up with enough methadone to keep his little junkie watch ticking over for a month and bid the band farewell. They set off, and all was good. There wasn't any heroin in Barbados, and Tony had packed enough methadone for Sean to last him the month. However, when at Manchester Airport, Ryder fell over, smashed the bottle, and spilt it all over the floor. (laughs) And Wilson was correct. There wasn't any heroin in Barbados. But what he didn't know was that at that time, the country was in the middle of a major crack cocaine epidemic. (laughs) And the shit was cheap. Very cheap. Less than a pound for an ounce. So things got a little bit rowdy, shall we say. Now, there's a lot of information out there as the trip to Barbados has kind of gone down in folklore. But I thought I'd summarise a few highlights. So within hours of arriving, the the band had scored some crack and rocked down to Electric Avenue towards Eddie Grant's music studio. Did you like what I did there, by the way? I did, I did. Yeah, okay, good. Glad you picked up on that. Um, And with a new drug dependency in pocket. They attempted to get down to business after a little crack. Of Of course, yeah. Speaking of the time, Ryder said, we were in the studio for a total of three months. I was supposed to be writing, but instead I got into all of the local niceties, like water skiing and paragliding on crack. <laughs> the best way to paraglide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Little side note here. Um, Bez has also been quoted saying that they, they, they were there for eight weeks. So goes to show. He eh? didn't even go. That's how much he was <laughs> off his face. Um, well, he did go um, because, uh, yeah, he, he made quite the scene, actually. yeah. yeah. Uh, And so whilst they were there, uh, they turned Eddie Grant's swimming pool into a crack den using stolen sun loungers. Uh, Sean squared up to a rampaging baboon nicknamed Jack the Ripper, (laughs) who was looking to fight Ryder on the beach. Um, And uh, they wrote off a total of seven cars. And then the money ran out. As a result, uh, the band then took to more desperate measures in order to feed their crack habit with Sean even selling his own clothes. And, you know, having heard constant rumours of the band's crack use escalating out of control, a rightfully concerned Wilson jetted out to try and intervene. And later on, as his plane was about to land, he saw he actually saw Bez and Sean wheeling one of Eddie Grant's sofas down the street that they were hoping to swap for drugs. <laughs> And, you know, well, depending on which publication you read, uh, and there's quite a lot of uh, documents about this, uh, Sean was smoking about 25 to 50 rocks of crack a day. God. 
uh, Bez, the, the showboater, but also uh, the Maracas player, uh, key component, uh, rolled a hired Jeep and, and broke his arm. Uh, so they'd emptied Eddie Grant's recording studio and two off their box to sing or write. Little recording was done and the producers that had been sent over with them ended up having to simply babysit the group. Cut to when the band eventually returned to the UK, Sean got hold of the master tapes for the album and held them up for ransom from Factory, threatening to destroy them if Tony Wilson or Factory didn't pay him for them. Once a deal had eventually been met for an exchange of just 50 quid, (laughs) the music was shit and the vocals non-existent as Sean was so off his tits in Barbados that he failed to write any lyrics. Which meant the whole trip was a complete fucking waste of time and money for Factory. They sent Sean off to rehab and instructed him to scroll down some words in the meantime. Uh, The end result uh, were that was that the lyrics were a shambles and uh, the world's shortest album review was conceived. Melody's maker critique of Yes Please simply read, No Thanks. <laughs> Another review uh, that was written, uh, which was a bit more wordy, likened the album to sunlight striking in a stinking crack den or getting dumped at your birthday party. Quality vibe there. Um, the cost of the trip and the record amounted to £250,000. And a sofa and two sun lounges. Yeah. And two months after its ill-received release, Factory Records filed for bankruptcy and went into administration. Fuck. So legend has it that it was this trip to Barbados that killed both band and label. Although Sean Ryder argues that it was due to the label's piss poor management. Nevertheless, uh, whoever is right, and I suspect uh, in this case uh, it was actually Sean Ryder, uh, Wilson, who's, who's now considered by many as Mr. Manchester, said this I now believe that musicians are all tossers, every single one of them. Have you ever been called a musician? Uh, I've been called a tosser. Yeah. Um, yeah. I now believe that musicians are all tossers, every single one of them. But unfortunately, they have been given this godlike gift of writing wonderful music without which none of us would be here. So I'm willing to allow them that. But it should not allow them to all behave like cunts. Fuck off, nubhead. Do one. Junkie teeth icon. Top of the pops. Glastonbury TFI fuck Freedom to fuck off Signed in blood Pissing money up the wall Rider face Knobhead bass Bez on the pills Acid postman bites a dog No heroin Plenty of crack Electric avenue Sun loungers Sofa clothed for cash Musicians are tossers. Remember I told you when you got started, the guys who last in this business are the guys who fly straight, low-key, quiet. And the guys who want it all 
chicas, champagne, flash. They don't last. And uh, and yeah, and then Willie Nelson shot uh, seventeen Irish people. He didn't as fuck. You're going to be seeing a lot more of that sort of thing in the film. All of that actually did happen. Obviously, it's symbolic. It works on both levels. I don't want to tell you too much. I don't want to spoil the film. But I'll just say, Icarus. Okay. If you know what I mean, great. If you don't, doesn't matter. You should probably read me. Thanks again for listening to the Son of Zorro podcast. Please make sure to like, review and subscribe to the podcast on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Feel free to follow us on Instagram and check out our website, as you will be able to see pictures from the, this week's episode, uh, as well as a few extra songs from the Son of Zorro Spotify playlist that goes along with each episode, and any accompanying artwork as well. As always, a la vida. Oh,